You're listening to Resonance 104.4 FM. My name is Jack Thurston and welcome to another edition of The Bike Show. And there's a celebratory feel about the show this week because this is the 50th episode of The Bike Show. So incredible that we've managed to get this far in a couple of years. And it's a really great show this week. As promised, we have a report from Kieran Yates on Major Taylor, one of the early stars of bicycle racing in the late 19th and early 20th century, and one of the very first African-American athletes and world champions. But before that, it's with a little bit of sadness that we look back at the end of the Tour de France. It's a whole year until the Tour comes round again. And you may remember a couple of months ago, Alex Murray came on the show to talk about his preparations for taking part in the Etape du Tour, the day when amateur riders get the opportunity to ride a whole stage of Le Tour de France. And this year, the Etape was particularly cruel with a ride in blistering heat um, over the uh, alpine passes of the Col Duizouard, the Col de Lotteret, uh, finishing with a mountaintop finish up the Alpe d'Huez. Anyway, Alex was uh, a little bit trepidatious about taking part in the Etap. He'd never done it before. And Alex has been kind enough to record a report of how he got on. Having survived a coach journey that even Odysseus might have described as being a bit on the long side, we arrived at our hotel near Gap late on Saturday evening. After dinner, everyone set about assembling their bikes and checking everything was in working order. I was rather glad to get the bike out of its box and take it for a spin around the car park to make sure it was okay, even if I did manage to put my front wheel on the wrong way round, something I only discovered on our loosener the next morning. After that, it was time to head down to Gap, so I spoke to fellow rider Stu White to see how he was feeling. Stu, how was that for you? Uh, very gentle, and I feel very, very loose now. Very loose, yeah, very pleasant. Nice uh, confidence builder. By the time we got down to the welcome village at Gap, it all seemed a little more real and daunting. Well, we've been to pick up our numbers, and it's Peter. Peter, you've got your number there, you well, about to put it on the bike? I certainly am. Does it make you feel a bit more real now you're putting a number on the bike? Uh, yeah, it's probably a little bit more nervous to be quite honest with you, but there we go. <laughs> Finally we're made it. really here now. Mm. I've got to do it. No turning back then. No turning back. <laughs> Among those I spoke to on my way around the event village, where I was picking up water bottles and all the other freebies you find at such events, was Simon Mottram from Uber Cool Kitmakers Raffa, himself an ETAP regular. Are you riding tomorrow? I'm riding tomorrow, yeah, I ride every time. That's why we're here. And you've got your stall out here, it's doing brisk trade, I see? Yeah, we set our stall out. Well, we used to, I used to come here years ago and do the ATAP, and there used to be about 10 tents selling local pâtés and screaming neon jerseys. And uh, the local tourist ball will have a nice stand, and there's nothing to buy and nothing to look at. Um, so I thought if we do Rafa, then we're going to have to come here. Um, and last year it was busy, this year it's busier. So you're looking forward to seeing plenty of your Isawad shirts being worn tomorrow? Yeah, we've sold out of some sizes already. Uh, Any sizes in particular? Uh, large. <laughs> Unsurprisingly. <laughs> Maybe. So you might see them struggling a bit, but, uh, but no, it's going to be great seeing a lot of people out in our, in our kit. Sunday night was all rather fraught. 
Between the World Cup final featuring France and Italy and nerves, I managed to get next to no sleep before we were up and on our way to the start at 3.30 in the morning. It was still dark when we arrived in Gap to collect our bikes and ride to the start, amongst a sea of riders all heading excitedly towards their pens. At just gone seven, the announcer declared proceedings underway, and we gradually shuffled forwards to fulfil our dream on the roads of France. Some, like winner Blaise Sonnery, a 21-year-old Frenchman, would reach the finish in under seven hours. Some would struggle for up to 11 hours in temperatures of over 35 degrees. Over a thousand would never finish, facing instead a ride in the broom wagon. Well, I finally made it to Alpe d'Huez. Unfortunately, I didn't make it on the bike. Um, I got eliminated at the last checkpoint. I was 10 minutes too late at the foot of Alpe d'Huez. But to be honest, I don't think I could have gone on absolutely destroyed my legs were cramping I was dehydrated it was incredibly hot today I'm incredibly proud that I made it over the Isvard which was an absolute brute of a climb and then I battled it up the Amlotere and flew down the other side of it I'm glad I did it and I rode as hard as I did but I wish I hadn't had to mostly it was because um, at the first feed station there was a ridiculous bottleneck that cost me 30 minutes time that I had in the bag. That knocked everything out and meant I was riding right on the limit of the possible. And there was also a criminal lack of water. For me, one of the true highlights of the day was rolling into a small village halfway up the um, Col de Lottery and finding the villagers welcoming us and flagging us down and telling us just to stand, by, stand on our bike, they would hold the bike, and to pass, us, pass our water bottles to them, and they would go and fill them up from the local fountain. I ended up, I found myself at the foot of Alpe d'Huez in the medical tent for about an hour, being rehydrated by the medical staff there, before being stuck on um, a broom wagon up to the top of Alpe d'Huez. People I've spoken to made it round, they were amazed they made it round and they found it really tough. Anyway, I'm going to pop myself in the shower and then head off into town to enjoy a bit of the nightlife. And that's been my report on the Attapta Tour. Well, that was Alex Murray reporting on his Etapte Tour 2006. And he assures me that he's going to be back next year. And just like Floyd Landis, he's going to recover from the bonk to come back even stronger. Now, when you think of great American cyclists, you tend to think about those of the modern era, whether it's Floyd Landis or Lance Armstrong or Greg LeMond. But in fact, the very first world champion to hail from the United States was in the 19th century. Major Marshall Taylor uh, was a great cycle racer uh, particularly on the track, and it was during the heyday of cycling that he rose to prominence. And Kieran Yates, who's on an epic bicycle tour of the United States, put in a call to Worcester, Massachusetts, which was the home of Major Taylor, and is now the home of the Major Taylor Association, which is doing its best to commemorate Major Taylor and ensure that his memory lives on. They do all kinds of things, organising uh, races up hills 
and have been responsible for the renaming of a street in Worcester, Massachusetts, in memory of Major Taylor, and are fundraising for a statue to commemorate Major Taylor. Anyway, Kieran caught up with Lynn Tolman of the Major Taylor Association and started by asking what brought Major Taylor to Worcester, Massachusetts in the first place. Major Taylor grew up in Indiana and he came to Worcester at age 16 with his coach, manager and employer who was a man named Bertie Munger who was a former bicycle racer himself back from the high wheel era. And so uh, Bertie Munger wanted to open a bicycle factory and the northeast part of the United States was the nexus of bicycle manufacturing. Worcester was actually part of the triangle. Worcester, Providence, and Springfield were three cities that had a lot of bike manufacturing, so that's why Munger wanted to locate here. And uh, Taylor was a promising young beginner, amateur at the time, and came with him. And cycling in... Um as a sport in America at that time. It was one of the biggest sports, I believe. Cycling was huge. It was more popular than baseball. It was very, very popular. Everything from the indoor six-day races at Madison Square Garden in New York to uh, track racing outdoors. And Major Taylor did both of those. More, His first professional race was a six-day at Madison Square Garden, and then he was mostly known as a track racer. Um, but fans would flock to the velodromes where the racing took place and uh, loved to, they were in love with the whole idea of speed. Don't forget this was before people had cars, people had airplanes and you could go so fast on a bicycle uh, people were just thrilled by the sight of it. Major Taylor was one of the first black world champions. Um, many of the others are quite well known and remembered. Um, However, um, Taylor seems to have disappeared from everybody's consciousness, really. Major Taylor was the first black international sports superstar, and this was half a century before Jackie Robinson, who's arguably a better known name today, in a sport that was more popular than Robinson's sport of baseball. Taylor was the second black world champion in any sport after a boxer named George Dixon, a bantamweight boxer. Uh, That was also very popular, and uh, Taylor actually used boxing as part of his training. That was also popular in those days. Um, But it it is very sad that he, as soon as he retired and was out of the headlines, that he was forgotten. And what would you put that down to? Part of it was cycling itself really fading, um, and for that... Was that um, because of the growth of the motor industry in the First World War? Exactly. You had the automobile, and uh, that really put cycling into the back seat. And then, uh, there I am with an automobile metaphor. (laughs) And and you had World War I, which took a whole generation of young men. Cycling still has yet to come back to where it was in terms of popularity. It's... Lance Armstrong, Greg LeMond have done a lot to change that nowadays, but the 1890s was the heyday. He was a great, great man. 
He rode his bicycle around over time. It was a long time ago. But nobody cared about him, so nobody don't know about him no more. But he was a world champion. Yes, he was a world champion. Mega Taylor, Mega Taylor was Tell in the life long time ago in 1899. He was raising his bicycle over Europe long time for Jack Johnson and he was a prize fight. He played 42 years before Jackie Robinson got into the biggest league. And don't talk about all the other people that came along after his dream. Major Taylor, Major Taylor, Major Taylor was a champion. Play the blues, boy. Major Taylor, Major Taylor, champion. Major Taylor, Major Taylor, champion. Major Taylor, Major Taylor, champion. Major Taylor, he's gone, 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 gone. One of the more attractive parts of Major Taylor's career was, like Lance Armstrong in a sense, is that he had to overcome his own battles and personal battles, uh, besides being a champion athlete, um, certainly in the 1890s as a young black athlete. What kind of um, prejudices did uh, Major Taylor have to overcome at the time? Well, Major Taylor came up in the 1890s, which was uh, one of the most uh, terrible periods of racism in United States history. There were more lynchings in that decade than any other time in American history. Uh, slavery was long over, but a lot of the unwritten rules of segregation, separation of black people and white people, were being codified, written down, and brutally enforced. And this extended into every aspect of society, not only housing and schools, but into sports, and they actually wrote it into the rules of, of officially sanctioned cycling in 1894 that blacks were banned. But Major Taylor was hot, he was popular, he was big box office, and they made an exception for him. That didn't solve all his problems, he still ran into quite a bit of prejudice, uh, many closed doors and open hostility from other riders and from the public. Uh, there were times when he was places and times he was not allowed to train, not allowed to race. Uh, this impeded him from becoming American champion for several years. He couldn't compete in all the races that you needed to rack up the points to be named the champion. He was actually a world champion before he was a U.S. champion. Major Taylor really embraced religion after his mother's death. He was a steadfast member of the John Street Baptist Church here in Worcester, and because of his religion, he refused to race on Sundays. This generally wasn't a problem in the United States where most of the competitions took place on Saturdays and holidays. It did become an issue when he started getting very lucrative offers to race in Europe. Um, and there was at least one time in the United States where a race got 
postponed because of weather onto Sunday, and there were intimations that that was also a maneuver to keep Major Taylor out of it. He went to Europe for uh, three or four very successful seasons around 1900-01-02-03 and was really welcomed as a hero there, said he never felt so proud to be an American. Um, you were talking earlier about parallels with Lance Armstrong and uh, it's interesting that in Lance's case as well it kind of took the Europeans to, to, to say to the Americans, hey look what you've got here. <laughs> Once he was racing in Europe and um, became established in Europe. He became perhaps the highest paid sportsman of um, his generation. Yeah, Major Taylor was pulling down around $10,000 a year at the height of his career, which made him one of the wealthiest black people in America. And that was much more than baseball players of the era got paid. I think, in fact, there was a cap on baseball players' salaries in Ty Cobb's era of $2,000. So uh, it, it was very, very lucrative for him, although like most sporting careers, it doesn't last forever. <laughs> Do you think um, there was a, an element of envy from other races about the amount that he was earning? And perhaps within Worcester itself, there might have been uh, animosity about this young black man who had um, come up from practically nowhere to be a very successful person. I think that, that money and envy often go together, and there might have been some of that, but Major Taylor was generous with his money. He was particularly generous to his church, the John Street Baptist Church, as I mentioned. He took care of his family, not only his immediate family. He uh, had a, a sister who was ill who lived with him for many years. Major Taylor probably was regarded by some as an uppity so-and-so, and that was the kind of thing that could get you lynched. Going back to the start of Major Taylor's career, he seemed to fit very easily into the white world around him. Why, why was that? Major Taylor had a really interesting upbringing. His father was a coachman for a wealthy white family in Indianapolis named the Southards, and uh, Major Taylor uh, lived in the house with them. They had a son his own age, and he... Um, was tutored with him, played with him, uh, was really taken in by this family like their own child. So he grew up around white people and was comfortable interacting. I think that served him well throughout his life. It was that family, in fact, that gave him his first bicycle as a child. He never raised Oh, never raised on Sunday he never raised He never raised on Sunday Major Marsha Taylor Major Marsha Taylor Fastest man alive World, world, world champion Say world bicycle racing champion I said world the world champion, world bicycle racing champion. He never raced, never raced on Sunday. I said he never raced, never raced on Sunday. I said world, 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 world champion. The world, 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 world champion, bicycle racer, bicycle racer. <laughs> <laughs> 
I believe Major Taylor, at the time he was um, racing, was the fastest bicycle rider in the world. He held, held several world records. Yes, uh, and the speed was quite something in those days, uh, before there were cars and airplanes, and the, the speeds you could reach on a bicycle were just thrilling to people and they loved to watch it. Some of his record times uh, for one-mile sprints or sometimes shorter sprints, uh, some, and sometimes they would start out paced behind uh, a triplet or a quadruple or a five-person bike. Um, and sometimes it would be from a standing start. But I think he was up in the area of 40 to 45 miles per hour for some of his record speeds. And, and there was nothing that fast. So he was actually not only the fastest bicycle rider in the world, he was the fastest human on the planet. What about um, his contemporary, Mile a Minute Murphy? Right, he was up in that range also. And they actually uh, did a vaudeville act together at one time where they would ride rollers on a stage. Hey, Marzo. Get on, get on, get on your bike. You never race. You race on Sunday. I say he never race. You race on Sunday. Well, we've um, come outside to Four Hobson Avenue in. Uh, Worcester, which is where Major Taylor bought a nice suburban house um, turn of the 20th century and there was quite a lot of local opposition to him buying the house, wasn't there Lynn? Yes, this was a, a well-to-do neighbourhood, a well-to-do new neighbourhood at the time that he bought this house. He had an agent make the purchase for him. And when the neighbours found out who was behind the purchase, that it was a black man, they were up in arms and they immediately got together and offered to buy the house back from him right away for $2,000 more than he had paid. And he said, no, thank you. And they got over it. They found out that he was uh, not just any black man, he was very wealthy and distinguished and respectable. And so that uh, little tempest <laughs> simmered down. It's a nice house. He had a, a, a shed out back where he worked on his bicycles. He had a piano in the parlor that he would play. Um, he brought home a pet wallaby from his racing seasons in Australia that he kept in the backyard, and from time to time that would get loose. But wallabies not being a common pet hereabouts, whenever it would be hopping around the neighborhood, people would know whose it was, and it would get back to the Taylor's house. <laughs> Why exactly did Major Taylor die in poverty? He was the highest paid sportsman of his era and suddenly he, he went into a great decline and by the 1930s, before he was even 60 years old, he was dying of heart disease in the YMCA in Chicago. What, what went wrong? 
Well, financially, his fortune was sapped by his illness and also some failed business ventures. He tried to get into the fledgling automobile business after he retired from racing. He was uh, specifically had a tire business in Worcester. Uh, apparently wasn't a great businessman, didn't do well. Then the Great Depression came along. His uh, wife and daughter left him, and so he was on his own in 1930 as the Depression was really kicking in, and uh, he died in 1932. over as being a great sportsman, not just because of his ability to win, but because of his sportsmanship. Major Taylor's strength of character uh, is definitely one of the reasons that we seek to honor him and find him to be a great role model for children today. Uh, his athletic achievements were phenomenal, but his strength of character, his devotion to God, his insistence on fair play, there were times when the judges ruled against him and he said, fine, let's race again. Um, he never responded to violence with more violence. Uh, he was very much a turn-the-other-cheek person, and he pretty much, as a cyclist, let his legs do the talking. Mm -hmm. He wrote in his autobiography some uh, rules of, of fair play, and that, that's what he was all about. Good sportsmanship, that's what it was for him. Kieran Yates was in conversation there with Lynn Tolman of the Major Taylor Association, and music in that report was by Otis Taylor, and Blues Boy Himi. And you can find out more about Major Taylor by visiting the Major Taylor Association website, majortaylorassociation.org. And it's remarkably timely that uh, we should have been featuring Major Taylor in the bike show this week, uh, seeing as later on today, over in Worcester, Massachusetts, they're going to be dedicating the uh, central boulevard in Worcester or at least a section of it to Major Taylor and there's going to be all kinds of dignitaries there uh, at the convention centre uh, so well done everybody over in Worcester who's been campaigning to memorialise an extraordinary athlete and role model from a bygone era well that's about the end of this 50th edition of the bike show and remember you can listen to every single edition of The Bike Show, either as a MP3 download or via streaming real audio by visiting the Bike Show website, which is www.bikeshow.blogspot.com or by following the links through the listings section of the Resonance FM website, www.resonancefm.com. Tune in next week, which is going to be, I think, the final edition of this season of the bike show and I'm going to leave you with this little gem which I picked up a couple of weeks ago in Belgium commemorating the greatest competitive cyclist who has ever lived Big Ted the cannibal Eddie Merckx bravo Eddie and chapeau
endosse tous les maillots. Il est le roi du vélo. Le monde entier applaudit. L'enfant du pays. Il est le plus beau champion. Et chacun crie son nom. Il est notre favori. Encore bravo pour Eddie. Un petit belge pour la petite reine. C'est sans problème car c'est un super champion. Il sait mordre le guidon. Pas comme un lion C'est le vrai Merxissimo Et le plus costaud Du monde il est le champion Et ce n'est pas du bidon Pour décrocher le bouquet Et dîmer le grand braquet le Tour de France, Tour d'Italie, quelle souffrance pour Pinjon et Gimondi quand il se met à rouler, rien ne peut plus l'arrêter.